You may have heard uh, in recent weeks that astronomers discovered a star some 40 light years from Earth uh, with seven Earth-sized planets orbiting that star. NASA declared, and this is where people went crazy with the headlines, three of those planets may support life. Uh, they said, it's, this is, as the report said, hey, you know what? Uh, the density could be right. Uh, they could be terrestrial, meaning they're not just gaseous. There's actually you know, something solid there. There could be water there. There may be life there. And again, headlines exploded, especially in the science sections, people hypothesizing what could be, what could be, what could be. But here's the deal. You need to keep something in mind, unless you spend too much time gazing up into the heavens tonight, wondering who's coming to visit you in your front yard. Um, there are at least some 150 different variables that all have to be in play in the perfect way just for there to be life anywhere, okay? Which means when you do the math and factor in some other factors that, that have to be brought into the equation, what you come to discover is that the odds of there being life anywhere else but here is something like 1 in 10 to the 50th power. That's a 1 with 50 zeros after it. And it seems that the more we know, the less likely it is, actually, because the variables keep increasing the more that we know and study this sort of thing. All that is to say, it certainly speaks to the necessity of fine-tuning for there to be life anywhere. And then if I can tweak this just a little, little bit, I would say that it's there in quite likely that um, E.T. is just not going to be found. Now, that said, these headlines do say something. And the frequency of these kinds of headlines when discoveries of, these, of this kind of nature is, is somewhat telling. The determination in the search is worth noting. The, um, the willingness of very smart people to jump to certain conclusions is telling. And what does it tell us? It tells us, it reminds us all over again of the deep longing in every human heart to know that we are actually not alone. The deep longing within every human heart to connect with something besides just us. To, to, to know and be known by someone greater. That's what all that tells us, ultimately. So with that in mind, I ask you to turn with me now to the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We are moving on in this series uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're trying to find Matthew's Gospel, that's the first of our four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the first of the books of the New Testament. Uh, we are in chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm actually going to read down through verse 24, but we're only going to talk about this morning verses 1 through 15. The plan is, is to talk about verses 16 through 24 next week, but I want you to see 
the different nuances there in what Jesus is saying, really with two different groups of people in mind. And I want to press hard on the first uh, this week and then move and look at the second next week. So Matthew chapter 11, looking at verses 15, 1 through 15, but reading verses 1 through 24. Hear now God's word. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Well, we need to pray. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we ask that you give us ears with which to hear and eyes with which to see, hearts softened, feet therein moving, minds thinking in accord with your word, and lives therein shaped and changed. As the prophets say, said, and you continue to say, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It's to your word we are looking now, and on its firmness we stand, and under its authority we bow. To you, Holy Spirit, we ask, help us understand. In your name we pray. Amen. I have a troubled relationship right now with the U.S. Postal Service. 
Um, let me spell out the mystery. See if you can figure it out. Um, over the last week, all mail made out to me in my name has been forwarded away from Clarksville. I traced it. Oddly enough, it's all going to Chattanooga. Now, some of you may know that our son attends UT Chattanooga, and it just so happens that all my mail seems to be going to his box. But that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense until then you begin to put all this together in terms of timing and you realize that said son filled out a change of address form a few weeks ago. But that still doesn't make any sense because we have two different names. Well, sort of. You see, he's Richard A. Schwartz. I'm Richard T. Schwartz. And it would seem that the U.S. Postal Service, in all of its great wisdom, and I hope I'm not offending anybody here by tweaking that just a wee bit, it would seem that they have merged us into one person. Um, they can't distinguish between these two individuals. And uh, we're one and the same, according to the eminent wisdom of the U.S. Postal Service. And i got to tell you, it's somewhat maddening. It looks like it's going to be fixed, but if you want to talk about how to fix it, I'll talk, be glad to talk to you at the lunch. But anyway, it got me to thinking, though, especially in connection with this text this morning, is God like a federal bureaucracy? <laughs> Lord, I hope no. Um, is he, does he just lump us together in broad categories that are, are just completely unhelpful, ultimately? Does he have the ability to distinguish us one from another? Does he treat us individually? Does he know us as, pe as persons and love us and engage with us accordingly? Praise God, yes. Yes. Let me take you now to the text. So where are we? We're in Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 10 has come to a close, meaning that all that the, Jesus had been teaching and training up his disciples to send them forth on this mission, it's done. They're out on a mission. That's where they are. When everything is going on in, in chapter 11 is going on, that's where they are. They're off on this mission that he has prepped and trained them for. In the meantime, messengers come to Jesus, sent from John the Baptist. And they, they come with a question from their master, I guess you could say, their teacher, uh, they come with this question. That, and Jesus' answer to that question then sets in motion everything that you see in chapter 11. It all unfolds from those messengers coming from John the Baptist with this question. Then everything that you see in chapter 11 unfolds from that point. And it has to do a whole lot with this. Jesus' response. Jesus' response to people. Jesus' response to their issues. Jesus' response to their struggles. Jesus' response to us is what you see here in chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. And what we're learning here is something that we really need to take it to, to, to heart, and that is his responses to us are not flat and bland, but nuanced and personalized to the person, to the individual. Um, to, to, to the doubter, verses 1 through 15, where we're looking today, he comes and responds one way. To the skeptic, verses 16 through 24, where the plan is to look next week, he responds a different way. And this is really something that's well worth our chewing on and processing and wrestling with just a little bit. Jesus 
responds to us in ways fitted to our response to him. Jesus responds to us in ways fitted to our response to him. And we would do well to carefully consider that. What sort of responses do we see here? It's a dance. It's an interplay. First, John's response to Jesus, part one, followed immediately with, then, Jesus' response to John. What do we see? Let's look at this together. First, John's response to Jesus. Uh, verses 1 through 3. John, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on, they, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. That's the context. Now, verse 2. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now let's break this down. What is John saying? He's asking a question. Um, the prophets of old, through the Spirit of the living God, had promised the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who is to come and issue in an age of shalom, of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And John knows that. He's steeped in that. He knows something of the news reports as he's getting of this one. He's saying, Look, much has been said of you, much has been seen of you, but are you him? Are you really him? Now, if you've read anything of Matthew's gospel thus far, this should be a surprise to you, this question. Because this is not the first time John the Baptist has been mentioned in Matthew's gospel. Yeah, we're in chapter 11. Keep your thumb there. Let's go to chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. I want you to see, uh, verse, we'll start with verses 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And skipping over to verse 13. John's directly engaging with Jesus face to face. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Okay, what's happened? That's chapter 3. This is chapter 11. What's happened in the intervening months? Something significant has happened in the heart and the life of John. Why is he saying what he's saying? Why is he asking what he's asking? Well, back to chapter 3. Let's look just a little bit here regarding his expectations. Verses 11 and 12. He says to the crowds, this is a, a, a summary of his message, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's expectation is... Uh, mercy to those who repent and judgment to those who refuse. Oh, and by the way, now. 
now. Immediately, with the coming of the king, John's understanding those two would come on the heels of one another. And that's not what's happening. So therein you have immediately a collision with expectations, and then you have John's experience, which is important to recognize. Uh, as Matthew has told us, uh, he is in prison. Why is he in prison? Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great, who was around during Jesus' arrival on the scene, his incarnation, Herod Antipas had seduced and married his brother's wife, divorcing his own. John the Baptist called him out on it. Herod Antipas didn't take kindly to this and had John locked away. Uh, at a fortress, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, tells us the fortress was the Macarius fortress out there in the eastern area of Judea near the Dead Sea. A lovely vacation resort, no doubt. That's where John is. He's been there for some number of months. And you can only imagine what he has to be thinking at this point. Why is this taking so long? John's response, his feeling is that of confusion and consternation. What if I, what, what am I doing here? If the king has come, ushering in the age of shalom, of justice and mercy and faithfulness, what am I doing here in this prison? So you see, it's his expectations and his experience working together, creating a perfect storm, such that his response to Jesus is that of doubt. Grave doubt. North Korea has been in the news a bit as of late for several reasons. Uh, one, a recent, yet another, rocket launch, uh, a test. Another, the UN is investigating them for uh, human rights violations. And yet another one, I just learned of this this past week, um, they're looking in, authorities are looking into to the degree to which North Korea was involved with an $81 million Bangladesh cyber heist. If found guilty, the North Koreans would actually have propagated the biggest bank robbery in history. North Korea is not just known for those kinds of things, but also if I say North Korea, a lot of you immediately are going to think of the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. A lovely place to visit, uh, from what I hear. I mean, on the one hand, it's a fantastic nature preserve, because nobody can go there. Um, but, I mean, it, it's surrounded by barbed wire and tank traps and a live minefield and, and all of that sort of, of, of thing. It's a place where nobody goes and nobody wants to be. That's doubt. The DMZ. The buffer zone. The place between two places that nobody really wants to be. Understand, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is the, the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, the buffer zone, the, the where you, the, this, this no man's land, the place of the divided heart, torn between what you want to believe and yet what you see. That's what, what doubt is. And that's what John is suffering from. That's what many of us are suffering from now, or have, or will. And where does it come from? You can see traces of it even in John's own experience. Intellectual sources, affectional sources, and emotional sources. Intellectual. Misinformation and misunderstanding. 
Very real possibilities. Affectional. You, you're not getting something that you want or you're getting something thrust upon you that you desperately don't want. Emotional. Fear. Anger. Grief. All very human things. In any one of those soils, the intellectual, the affectional, or the emotional, doubt can, can spring forth from any of those soils or some combination thereof. And it's very normal. Who can suffer from such things? Who, to, to, who could be the, the victim of such an affliction? Well, it would seem that prophets can. Count John up or in. Oh, and the psalmist. Oh, and when you read through church history, pretty much anybody. So count yourself in good company. What are some lessons to learn? Stay grounded in the Word. Stay grounded in prayer. And don't let yourself be isolated. Don't let yourself be cut off from the community of believers around you. serious. It's real. So some of God's ordained means to protect us from the DMZ. Okay. That's John's response to Jesus. How does Jesus respond to John? Oh, that's so well worth knowing. Uh, how does Jesus respond to John? Again, in a way fitted to John's response to Jesus. What are his words? To John. His response, by the way, is broken up in two ways. His words to John, and then his words about John. And it's worth noting both, because both tell us a whole lot about how he responds to us uh, in our own doubts. So his words to John, he begins with a reminder. This is verses 4 and 5, and Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is hearkening back to the words of the prophets, reminding John, calling him back to exactly what the deeds of the Christ actually were and were to be. There's something else going on here, something some kind of kind of subtle, I guess you could say, uh, in this, in that the the uh, the um, citations from the prophets that Jesus is alluding to here. All also, when you go back and read them, and John would have known this, are interspersed with uh, texts pertaining to, yes, judgment. So it's as though Jesus in a subtle way is saying to John, quite likely, I have not forgotten, John. I have not forgotten what the Messianic age in its fullness will entail. But the fullness of what it entails is, is yet to be fulfilled. So you need to be patient. So he begins with a reminder, and then he pushes further with a challenge. Verse 6, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, uh, this is a subtle but clear, gentle rebuke. Jesus is saying to, to John, John, you need to re-examine not me, but your assumptions about me. You need to let, don't get those mixed up. Re-examine your assumptions 
about me. And in this, what Jesus... No, Jesus is not extending a withering blast of rebuke to John. It is a loving response. It would have been unloving not to say something in terms of a rebuke, of a correction. But even the way Jesus says it and the, how he couches it and how he conveys it is so compassionate and so good. So those are his words to John. Then we see, once those messengers, they leave. You see that in verse 7. And then we see his Jesus' words to the crowd, those who have been listening and taking all this in. Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't stop. It's not just his words to John. It's his words about John that tell us yet even more about how Jesus responds to us in our doubts. So picking up in verse 7, um, we see these strong words of affirmation. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This man is not weak. He's not soft. He's a prophet, and oh, lo, yet he is more than a prophet. That's what Jesus is saying to the crowds about this man. And he goes further, picking up in, in verse 10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than me. He is not just a prophet. John is the very subject of prophecy. He is the messenger foretold by the ancient prophets. He is standing on the very threshold of the coming of the kingdom and the king that he heralded. That's who this man is. That's what Jesus is saying. Yet he goes even further in this affirmation of John. Verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is the fulfillment of the predictions, the prophecies of this Elijah-like figure who would come and pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. And by the way, in terms of what's going on, the hostility that he is experiencing and, and feeling it full, in a full-throated way, what's going on there with his being locked away by Herod and all the injustice that he is experiencing is nothing new, is what Jesus is saying. This is a satanic opposition, human and experience at the human level. There's nothing new, and by the way, it is but the signs of things to come. That's what Jesus is saying. Again, these words of affirmation of John, and he doesn't even stop there. Then he ends with this, uh, just landing it hard. In verse 15, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, the, the exclamation point at the end. What is Jesus doing? In the, in the wake of John the Baptist, this very public figure's public doubt expressed in Jesus, Jesus does not defend himself but John. In no way does Jesus feel insecure and threatened 
such that he has to defend himself. He is not attacking John. He is gladly defending John. So John responds to Jesus with doubt. How does Jesus respond to John? With love and compassion. You could even say costly love and compassion, which is just the way he does for all of us in the doubt of the DMZ, of the no man's land. There's great encouragement to be found in this, if we will have but ears to hear. To doubt does not necessarily mean that you are lost. It could well mean they are signs of deep growth that are about to spring forth with beautiful fruit. To doubt does not mean necessarily your faith is dead. It could well mean, yes, a warning sign, pay heed. It could be a hopeful sign, though, of faith that is alive and kicking. And on the other side is going to come out stronger than ever before. Having faith, I said this earlier, Christians, followers of Jesus, Believing in Him in no way insulates us from the possibility of having doubts. Absolutely not. Every believer, especially I would even go so far as to say, to the degree you are a thinking believer, is, has, will go through seasons of doubt. And praise to his name, on the other side, there can be found strength. And even through it. There's great encouragement to be found here. There's also a challenge. A challenge in how we come alongside those who doubt. Dave read from Jude just a little while ago, Jesus' half-brother. That's who Jude was speaks very powerfully to that. Be merciful to those who doubt. We are called, friends, to be patient with those in the DMZ. We are called to be humble towards those in the DMZ. How do we engage with another person, a brother or sister, struggling in such ways? Is that, do we really need to ask that question? How does Jesus engage with John? That's all you have to say in answer to that question. How does Jesus engage with John? In a loving, compassionate, patient way. Jesus responds to us in a way fitted to our response to him. Oh, we need to pay careful heed to this. Now I want to end with this. What's at the root of all this, of our, of our doubts? Where's all this coming from? What's it, how, if you trace the stream, where do you end up? 
Here's where you end up, at the fall. Genesis 3, a real event in space-time history that had real consequences and effects in space-time history. Where Satan comes and deceives our first parents, Adam and Eve, into doubting, that's where it begins, doubting the goodness and wisdom of God. That's the origin of all of our doubts. It's as though a rock, we talked about this even in the Inquirer's weekend yesterday, it's as though a rock was dropped into a pond and from out there come these ripples. Those ripples are the disruptions, the separations, the tearings, the rifts that take place between us and God, between us within ourselves, between us and one another, between us and creation itself, a tearing, a rift, the whole human person affected. Mind, body, and spirit. No part insulated or unaffected. And all of that has to be taken intensely, seriously. But therein, there is hope, because there's one, the great physician, who comes charging into this triage scene. Jesus comes and treats each one of these areas of brokenness in the way it needs to be treated. And each individual patient and person as an individual and a person fitted unto them. He is not some quack. He does not come in with a, a cookie-cutter template treating every patient as though they were the same. He is not willing to just address symptoms and symptoms only. He is determined to go to the root of the issues. The very root of the issues. And all of their complexities. He does not treat us as machines. He treats us as individuals, as persons. And if that seems radical to you, if that seems like, well, I've never heard of doctors doing such a thing, well, he's been in that business a long, long time. That's the way he works and always has and always will. That's how he deals with us. Let me give you an example. From John chapter 20, the resurrection account. of John. Hey, you know it's Lent? Not a bad time to maybe pick up and read some of these passages. I'm not going to read it now. You read it today when you go home. John chapter 20, the resurrection appearances, as John records for us anyway. Jesus appears to four separate groups of people. As John records for us, that first Easter Sunday. To four separate groups of people. Well, and there's one a week later. I'll get to that in a minute. Four separate groups of people in four separate different ways. Why? Four separate needs. He comes to Mary. She's grieving. He comes with comfort. To Peter and John, as they enter the tomb, he gives them the evidence that they need for this insane news. For the rest of the disciples, up there in the upper room, hiding, doors locked, he comes and speaks to them to instill courage into their bones. A week later, Thomas. He gives Thomas what he needs. See. Touch. He gives every one of them exactly what they need because he treats us as individuals. 
addressing exactly where we are, knowing where we are, and addressing us just in that way. And that's just what we see here in Matthew 11. Exactly what we see here in Matthew 11. His response to us tailored to our response to him. To the doubter, he comes towards us one way. Next week, the plan is we're going to see how he comes to the skeptic in a different way. Jesus responds to us in a way fitted to our response to him. We need to carefully consider that. Let's pray together. Lord, this is good. It's good to be known. It's good to be loved. You have made us to be known. You have made us for relationship with you. And this is a wonder that the almighty God of the universe would treat us, these frail, foolish rebels, so lovingly, so wisely, so well, in a way fitted to just what we need. You know our doubts. You know them better than we do. You know the reason for them far better than we can imagine. And you respond to us with understanding and sympathy because you are not threatened. You are not insecure. It doesn't unravel you in any way for us to doubt you. And we know that you can take this and that experience and all things, working in and through those things to shore us up and strengthen us for another season, an even harder season perhaps. So Jesus, for those here this morning who are suffering in an acute, painful, difficult season of doubt, we pray that you'd be merciful to them and give them courage, encourage their hearts, Help them to trust in you, to lean in you, to not forget in the dark what they knew in the light. And for all others who just, at least at this moment, are not suffering in that way, would you help them to be yet patient and humble and compassionate and merciful in the same ways that you have been to them. Thank you for the candor of these accounts, the honesty with which you speak, and the strength that you give. In your name we pray. Amen.